The Worker Learner Podcast is brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Bringing together the expertise of Griffith University's academics and research centres, our professional learning is designed to deliver creative solutions for the workplace of tomorrow. Whether you are looking for opportunities for yourself or your team, we have you covered. Okay, welcome uh, everybody. My name is Brian McIntosh. I'll be your host for today. Uh, I'm Associate Professor of Integrated Water Management here at Griffith University, part of the School of Environment and Science, the Australian Rivers Institute, and also the International Water Centre. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have uh, with me today, not just one, but two uh, great guests to uh, engage in conversation around two topics uh, which you might not uh, immediately connect together, blockchain and water, um, one virtual and one very much a, a physical substance. Uh, so what I'd like to do is, is introduce uh, our two guests um, uh, and ask each, each of them, Katrina uh, and Fraser, to introduce themselves, uh, say something uh, about, um, about who they are, um, what they do, uh, and uh, uh, and how you, how they got to where they are just now before we get into into the topic itself. So, Katrina Donaghy, you're the CEO of a, of Civic Ledger, a, a company here in Brisbane, and could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your story? Yeah, thank you, thank you, everyone. Um, I guess it's I've always had a bit of a water uh, journey in my my in my life, and I guess it doesn't make me too surprised that I'm actually here doing this strange thing called blockchain and water. But um, born in New Zealand, so came to Australia during the 1974 flood. So my first my first ever experience of Australia was rain and flooding, and watching a city being enveloped by water and then recovering. And then many years later, I found myself working at Brisbane City Council for the flood management team of all people and was there during the 2011 flood event. Um, and then after finishing Brisbane City Council, I went to work at Urban Utilities, Queensland Urban Utilities, and worked with uh, building water utilities of the future. That was back in 2012. So we were very early looking at, you know, what would a decentralised utility look like? But I think... Leading up to why I'm actually here and how I got here was, was the question of data. I saw a lot of, of work undertaking to solve problems where data was at the heart of it, but we just couldn't actually share it. And I used to watch with frustration. Um, and it wasn't until 2015 that um, blockchain technology found me um, just because of level of curiosity and fast forward to 2016 uh, when I got to meet Fraser who will tell his story. Um, we met when uh, Civic Ledger was making an application to the Australian government on a program called BRI, which is the Business Research and Innovation Initiative. And one of the problems that they had that they put out to the market was how to solve the problem of confidence and transparency in the Australian water markets. And um, we subsequently put an application into the government under the strong guidance of Fraser, him working with me, putting all of that together. And we were successful. And so Water Ledger was sort of formed out of that journey with the Australian government way back in 2017. 
That's great. Thanks, uh, Katrina. And look, at, I, I, I know you both a little bit, so I, I know something of Fraser's history. And uh, I, I guess we, we probably hoped that we had solved the problem of confidence in the, the Australian water market with uh, sometime during the, the first decade of the millennium. But Fraser, maybe you could introduce yourself and, uh, and tell, tell our listeners something about who you are and uh, what you're doing just now and how you, how you got there. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, well, as the accent might give it away, I'm not particularly from Australia. I am Australian citizen, but obviously originally from Scotland, where my background was actually in advanced IT systems. Um, but most of my actual working life has been in managing natural resources. Um, but when we actually moved to Australia um, in 2005, I actually became very much involved with managing um, all of the water uh, allocation and water water data and information processes in South Australia. And thereafter, um, I spent an interesting five years um, leading the development of the um, Murray-Darling Basin Plan. So in a sense, got a, a bit of a um, burning, literally, in some senses, in terms of understanding the politics of water. Um, and in that kind of context, uh, after that, I've then been working internationally, um, laterally for organisations like the Global Water Partnership or um, the World Water Council. So I now live and work in France. And for the last, what seems like an age, but it's only really been a few years, I've been working on, if you like, blending my interest in technology, in this case, blockchain, but also with the kind of practical experience of water to try and actually make some real changes or transform the opportunity we have we have to manage water sustainably and as i said in practice what we think is well managed in practice for any people who are in the system they actually really do appreciate some of the challenges um, and as katrina said a lot of those challenges are actually built around data but at the same time also kind of um, couched within, as I said, the politics of water. Look, you've begun to paint a bit of a, a picture for us here that, that might help the listeners weave together this thing called blockchain uh, and, and water. Um, and I'm guessing that probably most of our listeners have at least heard of the word blockchain, probably heard of it in the context of uh, what looks like an increasingly volatile uh, form of currency, cryptocurrency, uh, but it's it, it, they may only have heard of blockchain in, in passing. So before we go a little bit more into the connection between water and, and blockchain, can, can you just give us a, a quick kind of one-on-one, what on earth, what, what is blockchain? Well, it's always interesting. I mean, Katrina's the expert as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I'm, I'm much more a newcomer to the technology, but it's always interesting and fascinating for someone who's a newcomer to try and explain this kind of weird and wonderful technology because it fundamentally challenges the way we think about problems. I mean, blockchain in many ways is not really that much different than a database, but it's got, it's got some unique characteristics. So when we think of a database, it usually just sits on a computer in the corner of the office or in a server, but it's controlled by whoever owns the database. The blockchain is a database that is actually split across multiple different um, nodes or computers around the world, and it's not actually owned by anyone. 
So straight away, you're in a different way of thinking about how you might use that technology. You've also got things like when you write something to a database, the database administrator can go in and change it. When you write something to the blockchain, that's it. It stays there forever. It's immutable. You can't change it. So if it's wrong, everyone can see that it's wrong. And the only thing you can do is write, You could, the only thing you can do is to write another piece of data to the blockchain correcting the error. So in effect, what oh, you're... So there's no sort of super, yep. there's no super administrator. No, there isn't. Um, the other thing about the blockchain, which is also important, is that it, transparency. So when you put it on a blockchain, it's in the public domain. It's a, the blockchain is visible to anyone in the world. I mean, okay, not I'm not sure everyone would necessarily appreciate nor understand what they might see, but it's possible for everyone to look at it. So it's totally transparent. The database sitting in the corner of your office is not in the least bit transparent unless you decide to make it so. So therefore, blockchain has got this inherent capacity and capability. The other thing about blockchain is that when you're actually operating on it, you have actually got the ability to exchange um, with other people on the blockchain, and you don't need a trusted intermediary to, to do that on your behalf. So it's got peer-to-peer -peer transactions. And it's the blockchain that provides that security to make sure that it's properly ledgered, properly stored, and able to be interrogated. And at the same time, the blockchain is also more secure than a typical database because of the, cryptog the cryptography that it uses to actually encode all of the data onto the blockchain. So for me, the technology is interesting but it's actually the characteristics of the technology that are really where the power of it is in terms of its application to water. It's not, you know, so there are, when we talk about blockchain, we often think of the, as you said, the cryptocurrencies. Blockchain has got nothing, to, is the technology that allows cryptocurrencies to work. Um, but briefly then, before we look at water, can you tell us something about Civic Ledger and what, what your company Civic Ledger does with blockchain? Because some of it's water, but not all of it's water. Yeah, so we were very early to the tech. I think um, before we actually did the application to the Australian government, we did a proof of concept with the Queensland government where we looked at a civic entitlement and how we could digitise that, secure it on a registry and then uh, track its history through through the different transactions to which that um, that that asset walked through, um, that gave us an interesting insight because back then in 2016 there was a lot of more focus around consortiums and banking and payments and things like that. But we always were interested in real world assets, so the term civic ledger came about because initially we were really interested on how we can actually create a real digital experience between the citizen and government and remove that friction. And we saw that assets such as permits and rights and entitlements are always associated with a registry and they have rules around them, whether who they can be issued to, who can own them, and then what is the utility of those assets when you get them, whether they can only be consumed once or if there's residual value, could they be traded in a marketplace like we see with water. So Civic Ledger came out of doing a proof of concept first. So we didn't form the company and then go look for a blockchain 
that's going to solve a problem or a problem looking for a blockchain. Um, we were really quite diligent in our process. And I think because some of this came from government, we could see this as an opportunity. And also government was going through the whole concept of digital transformation. Um, and blockchain seemed to us, and also because we've all worked in the public sector, that we saw the problems of data, where data could not be shared across organisations that it had to get redone and redone. And every time data is touched, it becomes an extreme liability. But since then, obviously, water was something that we that we kind of, I don't know if we fell into it, Fraser, but it seemed to come to us and we kind of went, that's really interesting. Let's go and explore that. Okay, okay. And look, I suppose with your both of your respective histories in water, uh, probably turning your eye to water was something that was inevitable. Um, can can you tell us something then? Tell the listeners something about how you how you came to conceive a blockchain as as relevant to water resource management. And I'm, I'm thinking here about water resources because, of course, uh, maybe not so much in a household. You know, you turn on a tap and water comes out, and you you essentially you pay for a service from from the utility. But uh, when you're talking about larger amounts of water, farm farmers or even the utilities themselves, you know, they are, they are buying water in bulk and they maybe even have allocations or rights or entitlements to water. Um, so can you tell us something then about, about how you see these water being linked to blockchain and what's, what's, what, what's the problem with the way that water is currently managed that blockchain might help with? Right. Well, I'm going to start and then I'm throwing it to, to Fraser because Fraser's going to take us down this incredible journey. But basically, when we go back to the, the description that Fraser shared with us about what is blockchain technology, what is its characteristics, if I was to say it very simply, it's called triple entry bookkeeping, um, triple entry accounting. At the moment, the way we look at financial systems, you have two different books that are holding records or ledgers of information, and you need an intermediary in the middle to agree on what are the states of those accounts. What blockchain does is it creates that third place where maybe um, entries on, on um, Alice's side that need to have a relationship with Bob can be mutually shared into that, that particular account. And when we think about water, what is water? Water is something that we account for. Um, and our whole markets, our whole legislation, the way we actually regulate water is all based on accounting. That's why we have the water accounting framework. And it all comes down to who has what? Well, how much do we have? Who has it? Who's using it? And who's sharing with it? And it all comes down to a debit and credit entry. Um, and I'm going to flip it over to Fraser because he's going to now... Um, bring it in and say, well, why does water and blockchain are quite a good marriage? Okay, over to you, Fraser. Yeah. I was going to say that's that's no small task in terms <laughs> of just saying throw that one over. To, um, look, it, it's really interesting. I mean, I, in some ways I go back to, as Katrina said, when we first, the first conversation in 2016, we were talking about something which was, you know, an idea about there's this opportunity um, in terms of the giving confidence to the water market. And there was this technology called blockchain. And in some ways, the more we explored the characteristics of blockchain and the more we actually explored what we were seeing as the failings in terms of the water market particularly, the more it just seemed to be a, a, a sensible connection to make. As Katrina said, water comes down to three very simple things. 
How much do we have? How much do we use? And how much do we exchange between each other? And yet, at the same at the same time, while it might be that simple, you simply have to look at the newspapers in any country in the world to realise that we don't have that. Everybody is saying, well, they're disagreeing over that piece of data. That's not the amount of my entitlement. What about all of the water that is not actually licensed? If it's actually calculated, you know, in terms of the amount of water that is used by a particular type of user might be calculated by a hydrological model, whereas in another situation, it's actually measured on a meter. Are we actually comparing apples and oranges? Do we really know? And it, all of that kind of thing, until you actually have that indisputable accountability between the amount of water we have, the amount of water we use or extract, and the amount of water we share between each other, it is actually extremely difficult to actually, you know, hand on heart, say how much water is available. And the challenge is because most of the rights have been issued, granted by government, we all know the words over allocation. In other words, rights, more rights have been given out than there is physical water available. Classic example, I mean, in terms of looking globally, if you go to the, the Colorado Basin in the, in the Western United States, the volume of water associated with rights, and this is purely anecdotal, it's not something that someone can say this is the actual detail, but there is estimated to be about 16 million acre feet of water under rights. Today, the estimated volume of water available in the whole river basin is about 7.5 million acre feet. So, but now the rights have been given out, you can't take them back. Everyone wishes to exercise their rights and there isn't the water available. So what do you do? We, we essentially engage in what I would describe as smoke and mirrors a lot of the time. So, for example, we talk about wastewater treatment as being a brand new water resource. Well, it's not. It's the same water that was there before. It's just gone through a process and it's coming back into the system. You can't account for it as new water because it effectively was subject to the extraction right of the water utility who extracted it from the resource and they're now returning it to the resource. So you have to account for it as it extracts and as it returns. And Fraser, are we seeing any of um, of the situation of, of over over allocation of rights in in Australia? Well, there's there's I mean certainly when I was looking when we were looking at the Murray Darling Basin Plan, there was a big debate about what were called sleepers and dozers. I don't know if, if you remember that conversation. Most people wouldn't necessarily understand what it was all about, but there was perceived to be a set of entitlements or licenses that were actively used. There were another group of licenses that were that had been granted were but were inactive. In other words, they were asleep or they were um, as in long term inactive. And there was another group that were seen as being dozing in the sense that they were inactive but for shorter periods of time. And nobody actually could tell us how many, how many of these entitlements there were. Nobody could really, with hand on heart, say this is exactly how it worked because the rights had been given out over a long period of time. Sometimes they were paper-based. You know, so therefore, 
that challenge remains. While it's probably been managed to be more in balance in Australia over time, it doesn't mean to say that the debate about how much water is is under a right versus how much is physically available is never there. But in Australia, they have something which is quite different, which is what's called water allocation announcements, which effectively says that if there is a shortage of physical water available, they effectively restrict the amount that someone can take in terms of their entitlement. So that is the mechanism that Australia has developed to manage the imbalance between water that has been granted under an entitlement and the physical volume available in any one year. Okay, so so Fraser, um, imagine I'm I'm coming along into the Murray Darling Basin. I'm, I want to situate a, a a business. It might be agricultural or or I don't know a food or beverage production business. I need a lot of a lot of water. Um, it can. To what extent can I be confident that if I buy water that I'm or buy the rights to water? that I'm going to get what, what I need for, for, for my business? Well, that is, a, is an interesting um, question. Because when you buy a water right, it clearly gives you a, a legal right to a certain volume of water of a certain class. That could be high security, low security. It could be stock and domestic. It could be whatever kind of um, classification the government given. And there are many, many, many different classifications of water. Now, some of those classes of water have what are called very low security. So that means in a dry year, the chances of getting all of your water are very, very low. Whereas if you have a high security water entitlement, there is a much higher chance that you will get at least some of the water available. So if you think of water which is of a class for public water supply, then it would be the highest security water. Effectively, it would be guaranteed to be provided in even the driest of years. In other words, the government will make sure that enough water is kept back to supply towns and cities and households. By comparison, if you've got very low security entitlement, some of them are, you know, would be called things like maybe general security. You might actually only get water against that entitlement maybe one year and three. It just depends. But it all depends on two things. It depends on the way that the entitlement is classified and set up. In other words, the specific nature of the dig- of the asset. And the other thing is it depends upon all of the short-term water availability forecasting that is done to determine how much physical water will we have over the course of this water year. And those are the balancing buckets that we're playing with. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm mindful of our, our listeners entering this world of water resources perhaps for the, the first time. So in effect there's a there's a there's an availability dimension here you know, how much water is actually available for my, my new business that I'm trying to establish there's how much money am I probably willing to spend on on getting an allocation it may be more or less secure 
Um, uh, and then it, there's not just how much water that is available in, in, in the basin, it's, uh, it's how, how well we understand how much water that is available in the basin. And that last step begins to sort of suggest something towards, uh, I guess, a, a, a data and information solution. Um, so we've got this sort of this part of the picture, and then over on the slightly not quite connected to it yet is the idea of a blockchain and a transparent, open database, um, which could be private or could be public. Um, how how do these two worlds connect? What's the what's what's the advantage that, that the blockchain provides? Well, I, I guess one of the things is that one of the things that when after the Bitcoin blockchain was created. Well, it was given to the world in twenty in two thousand and eight. Around two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen, there was another blockchain that started to emerge called Ethereum. And Ethereum is one of the biggest public blockchains in the world. You know, when we think about non fungible tokens and and all those sort of things, that's what um, Ethereum is is known for. But we had these things come on in in the mid yeah about twenty fourteen called smart contracts. And smart contract is programmable code whereby we can take very complex rules and program them into code so they can, when they are called, um, they can self-execute the rules to which are embedded in those contracts. And when you look at water itself, it's heavily driven by rules. You have a water plan, you have a scheme, you have an operation plan, then you've got rules within that around zones and who can trade with who and the volumes and the day flow rates and all that sort of stuff. All of that can be programmable. So we have an opportunity to take those very complex rules and synthesize them down into programmable code, into contracts. So when a transaction needs to occur between two parties, the contracts can determine uh, whether all the information that is necessary for that contract to execute is present. And what we like about it is it actually builds what we call trustlessness, whereby a transaction cannot possibly occur if any data is being omitted from that transaction. So one of the things that we see quite a bit and it's still coming through is um, the whole idea of price. So up to now, it hasn't been a requirement to record price on trades. But our system actually says no price, no trade. But now we have to look at zero value trades because there's another thing coming through. But it just gives us the ability to speed up the automation of transactions by pre-programming these contracts. Um, and that is one that's very, very different to how markets work today because that's why you need all the intermediaries in the middle to check everything. Do you have the account? Did you have the water? Is it the right time? And you've got to have brokers and you've got to have this and this and this. So we're able to create a, a solution that removes that complexity from the market. And the, the, the kinds of trades that you, you're thinking of here, are these mainly sort of business-to-business -business trades? So one irrigator to another irrigator or maybe business-to-government, so an irrigator buys off of government or maybe even the other way around? Um, what, can you tell us something about the, the sort of the, the nature of these trades that, that, that either are happening just now or that you're thinking would happen in the future? Um, look, I think all of the above. Uh, today, it is fair to say that in, for example, in Australia, when we're talking about water trades, there is not much trade between different classes of water. 
So if you've got water that's set aside for agricultural use, people who are in the same class of water can actually trade with each other, subject to, obviously, approvals and hydrological conditions. But it's not. But at the same time, if you go to the United States, it's not uncommon for farmers to sell water to public water utilities and for public water utilities to sell water to farmers. So they're moving water between two different water classes. When we talk about who's actually engaging in those trades, it's it's invariably, it could be farmers, it could be industry, it could be government. It, in, in actual fact, I mean, you're starting to find um, people moving from small family farms right through to global international agribusiness or participants. But they don't always have the same power to participate in the market today because they're not necessarily able, you know, the large companies are able to invest more to understand what's going on in the market, understand going to all of the different exchanges. They can invest more to understand and participate. So they may even have more information. So there's a lot of what's called information asymmetry in the marketplace. For those people who have the information, they're in a privileged position. And it's one of the reasons why the actual participation rate in water trading is often quite low. In many countries, it might even be as low as 5% of actual people who hold a water entitlement. But if it was all on the blockchain, so if, if you imagine a world where every, every single water user was able to assert their water right, that means that they're able to define, I am able to take this volume of water of this class from this water resource. And everyone was able to do that. And they could then, with confidence, go into the marketplace and trade or exchange or share that water with other, other people in their local community. And the local community could actually come together to create its own very localised water exchanges where... You know, if you go to some parts of the world, water is actually managed collectively rather than necessarily individually. So you can create the mechanism for the individual assets to be asserted and defined, and they can then be traded and exchanged. But on the other side of the equation, the blockchain also helps us do things like, if you think of a water resource, in Australia there's a 10-year planning cycle, so for 10 years it's fairly certain how much water is theoretically available for use in that area on the blockchain that is actually you could mint those tokens onto the blockchain and say that's it that is the total amount of water we have available so on the one side you've got someone asserting their right to certain things and on the other hand you've got the physical amount of water available and both are immutable so what then happens if someone calls on physical water you can imagine that as a transfer of tokens from the resource to the individual. And all when we talk about an allocation announcement, it's effectively saying there's, it's, a, it's a little bit like an exchange rate between um, dollars and pounds. It's simply saying you've got 50% of your, of your entitlement, so the exchange rate can vary. So what you end up doing is these water tokens, physical water tokens, can actually move down to the individual using the blockchain, they can't be double spent, they can only ever have one owner at any point in time, and the ownership can change. So when I get that physical water, I could actually decide to 
donate my tokens to the environment if I wanted to, or I could sell them to my neighbour. All of that becomes possible and those choices can be made by the individual who actually owns those tokens in their wallet on the blockchain. And in that kind of way, you're creating this mechanism where you have become less dependent on having some trusted expert saying that, yes, that's possible or not. It creates an equal playing field for everyone who has got a right to use water and it is actually being held accountable to the amount of physical water we have. Sort of thinking then uh, about the the benefits, the picture that you've painted of of blockchain technology, um, it's put in place, it helps to, in a sense, democratise the the, the trading and the the ownership of of water entitlements, and it's got benefits in terms of of increasing efficiency. Uh, It's got this immutability and uh, cannot be corrupted um, uh, characteristic. Um, what, what's needed? What, what needs to happen? You know, what, why is why are we not steamrolling, uh, steamrolling our way at full speed towards this future? What are there any barriers in in the way? What needs to happen for for for, for this this sort of uh, information and data uh, infrastructure to be put into place? Oh, that's a good question, Brian. Um, look, there are there are. Do, some you, do barriers, you feel the need I for think, another think, podcast, yeah, I, Katrina? I <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's called humans. Um, no, look, I think we get very bedded, bedded down by legacy systems. Um, and the biggest challenge that we find is that data is held in legacy systems and it's very, very difficult to to understand the nature of that data. Like just things, simple things like how legislation is written, uh, even though we have a Water Act that's a Commonwealth Government Act and then each state government, based in state government, will interpretate that Water Act they apply their own definitions and different terminology that is uniquely to that state and water moves between states. So you, when you actually are designing a blockchain solution, you, you're looking at data structure to give it meaning. Um, and the biggest challenge is that data is everywhere, but we can't verify its quality. And then we have to do a lot of work, just go, you know, just basic things like identity um, when we look at the way unique identifiers are allocated to customer accounts, they're not consistent across multiple systems. So some of it is very much around legacy. Um, a lot of it is around a lack of education. Um, when they think about blockchain technology, a lot of people get afraid and they think it's that crypto thing and it's it's scary. So we sort of find that the, the organisations that we needed at, to have at the table, i.e. regulators, have been resistant for many years, but we're starting to see that change. Um, and also, I think also industry are now getting impatient. Industry is starting to step up and say, how do we embrace emerging technology for the purposes of efficiency, but also around creating trust with their customers or trust within their supply chains? And is is the 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 sort of I suppose the proposal of of a blockchain enabled um, water resource information system and possibly even a sort of smart contracting system which has got some degree of automation uh, is is there a barrier here because this presents a, a sort of a challenge to the the uh, I guess the the who does what you know the the, the way that we've structured and uh, our government water governance. The, the who's got power to to make what decisions? Yeah, is there a, is there a sort of a, Look, a I, challenge here? 
Yeah, I think, but I think the challenge is, is that there's a misunderstanding because we codify the regulation itself. So it's not like we're, we're actually taking the power away from the regulator. What we're trying to do is make their job easier by stop placing more regulation across markets when there is nefarious activities. So this is about trying to, I guess, bring on, you know, honesty back into the market by enabling people to have exactly the same information at exactly the same time that is driven through compliance. We call it regulatory technology. Really, if we were to use how are we applying blockchain technology into water markets, it's around regulatory technology. So everything is compliant by design. So that's why we take great care to ensure that what we build is actually compliant to the legislation. That's great. So it's an it's an interesting thing, though, isn't it, Brian? When mm. you think that there's so much fear around this technology, but in effect, what we're actually doing is is codifying. Are we codifying law? Are we codifying regulation? Mm. Well. In some ways, yes, we are. And because it's transparent, it can be checked. And so, you know, it's a... Yeah. yeah. And I think we saw with the ACCC inquiry, um, you know, which took two years and, you know, and we had the Royal Commission a couple of years ago. So it's costing the taxpayer money, an enormous amount of money to try and get some level of transparency into these markets. So I think at some point we have to put a line in the sand and say, are we comfortable with maintaining these legacy systems and continually having lines of inquiry or are we going to start driving a, a bottom-up solution approach that is decentralised, that is not trying to stitch, stitch, stitch state registries together? That will never be stitched together for the reasons that we understand. Look, um, that's, uh, we, we've, we've, we've painted a, a pretty, uh, actually quite a detailed picture um, going from blockchain generically right down to and through to, to, to water governance arrangements and regulation. Um, there's challenges uh, associated with uh, education, um, legacy systems, all sorts of things. Um, so it sounds as if there's a lot of work for for uh, Civic Ledger for 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 yourselves to to do. Um, what what are the key steps that you're going to be taking over over the next few years to to push the application of blockchain technology to to water management forward? Well, we've, well, we've got we've got two tracks, and I'll answer. I'll talk to one, and then um, I'll let Fraser talk about what he's been working on with. Um, the task force and nature markets and and other parts of the world where he's working with other countries but the first step that we're doing is we in the early days we had to do the feasibility study to look at the problem and sort of assess whether this technology was a good fit to help solve those problems we did that in 2017 we ran a pilot to validate our hypothesis um, because we didn't want to just go boots and all and go here's the solution isn't it magic we had to then verify whether we could actually codify uh, the plan or the water plan and the rules and create a compliant by design market. And we did that pilot in 2020, which is, again, was very research-based. And plus the thing for us too is that the technology has changed so much since we started in 2016. Oh, my God, has it changed. So we've had to be technology agnostic for the last many years. Um, and where we are now is we're now working directly with um, an ROL. So in for, your, for your listeners, an ROL is a research operations license holder who is empowered through the legislation 
to hold water and sell water to irrigators and then maintain those accounts for compliance. So we're working with the ROL directly to transform their water accounting system and their water trading platform. And we're continuing our work with the CRC for developing Northern Australia to design the digital infrastructure layer that's necessarily to build out new generation water markets across Northern Australia. And the tablelands up in far North Queensland is our strategic test bed. So we've already done the pilot up there. We're now moving into deployment and that's huge. So turning water ledger live, bringing on irrigators, starting to assert their ability to assert their transactions into their digital wallets. This is a real step change. And we're doing this all in Queensland. But over to you, Fraser. I know that there's quite another layer that you might want to yes. introduce. And, uh, yeah, so Fraser, look, tell, tell us something about the... Uh, these, are, I suppose, will be moving towards the, the end of uh, our conversation. Um, tell us something about the steps that, that you'll be taking uh, uh, over the next next few years, there, there are a whole range of things. As Katrina said, you know, she was focusing on what some of the practical deployment aspects. One of the things we've been working on a lot over the last few years, and will continue to do, is, is what I would describe as the conceptual underpinning. Because, as you said at the very beginning of this conversation, Brian, you said blockchain and water are not necessarily two things that easily um, come together. And one of the things that's incumbent upon us to do is to actually try and explain how these two things can actually work together. So we've actually, for example, published a document, a white paper on what we described as water as a token economy, which is trying to explain some of these concepts and to show how it could be applied. And we are continuing to develop and build up that conceptual underpinning. And somehow or other, we have to fundamentally shift this perspective that in order to have a share, if we have a shared problem, we need to have a shared solution. If we're going to be, if we're going to build the trust that is necessary to make sure that water is managed within its physical boundaries on the planet, but at the same time that everyone is able to assert and exercise the rights that, that they either hold informally or implicitly or have been formally granted by government. And that conversation is one that is resonating in pretty much everywhere because every country in the world at the moment there is deep levels of frustration about the way the water system works today obviously nuance every country is a little bit different but when you really break it all down we may you we may all use different words but at the end of the day there are a few things that just keep bubbling up this sense of deep frustration the sense of disempowerment of the actual people who are water users. And at the end of the day, this democratisation that you described earlier, the people who actually use water or extract water are the ones who are most impacted by the changes that take place in the water sphere, but they're also the ones who are best placed to take action to make sure we live sustainably. So our view is that blockchain can empower these people to really transform the way we think about water, the way we manage water. And regulators can actually use that as a basis to improve and streamline and achieve more efficient regulation of water, all in the knowledge that we are providing the indisputable accountability between the water we have, the water we use, and the water we share. And in that way, it is a shared truth that everyone is participating in creating and curating 
and therefore they can trust that it actually will serve them well. Well, those are fantastic, uh, fantastic words to, to, to bring our conversation to a close. Um, Fraser and Katrina, I think you've, you've helped us and our listeners, um, uh, I guess, peel back some of the, the, the opaqueness which surrounds uh, water. You know, it's a, it's a clear, clear liquid, um, but it's the, the, the world of water management is, is not a world that's, that's well appreciated or or understood outside of uh, outside of uh, of actors in in that world, uh, you've helped us to understand some of the complexity there. Um, you've provided us with uh, both a challenge and an opportunity to think about uh, how we might use what seems like a totally dissociated technology, blockchain, to to to, to provide a whole range of uh, not just efficiency benefits, but um, uh, uh, social uh, and sustainability benefits. Um, uh, you've probably raised a whole set of questions in our listeners' minds, which are fantastic. You know, water is a it's a complex system, uh, and much of it is uh, is is complex because of the way in which we interact with water and with with each other. So, fantastic insights, um, and I'm sure. Uh, I'm speaking on behalf of our listeners that we wish uh, your company and your personal journeys all the success over over coming years as you as you try to play your role in, in reforming and improving the way that water is managed. Thank you, thank Brian. you both. Thank you, Brian. And Fraser, thank you to you too. You're very welcome. The Worker Learner Podcast was brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education.